millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. If the parks be the lungs of London, we wonder what Greenwich Fair is. A periodical breaking out, we suppose. A sort of spring rash. A three days fever, which cools the blood for six months afterwards. And, at the expiration of which, London is restored to its old habit of plodding industry. As suddenly and as completely as if nothing had ever occurred to disturb them. That's Charles Dickens on Greenwich Fair. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, almost like cultural anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people. You link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, September the 28th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. We're in amongst the squirrels today. We're at Bethnal Green Gardens. Uh, here with me, I have Alan Gilby, who has been called by Time Out a stand-up tour guide and uh, a stand-up chap he is too. He's also a squirrel enthusiast and author of East End Back Passages, an explorer's guide. Uh, here as well, Patrick Dalton. He's the editor of a book whose name we, we can't broadcast on iTunes uh, because it's got an offensive word in it. Shame on you, Patrick Dalton. I'll do the rest of the intro and then we'll work out how we're going to handle the expletives he is the editor of, of that book and a website by the same name and it's all about snapshots from a city on the edge professionally he's a radio producer he's worked at the bbc and lbc and he's also a city obsessed photographer who naturally gravitates towards the weirder aspects of modern life and pop culture which is possibly why he's here today hello you both good morning hello uh, we should we 
probably get straight into the uh, the, the sweary part of today's show because uh, we've got the Andrew Mitchell story that we've got to deal with later on. But first and foremost, Patrick Dalton, your uh, book, which is called Brace Yourself, Listener, S uh, asterisk 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 London. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how we're going to say this today. I mean, I guess the easiest way would, would us, uh, for us to say beep rather than for you having to edit them in later. The book is called... The word flit, it rhymes with that. So use your imagination. <laughs> flit London. Um, I've, got, I've got my list narrowed down as yeah, to what it could go. possibly be. Okay, so you're the, you're the author of Bleep London and the, author of, uh, and the editor of Bleep London as well. It's the, the weirder aspects of London life, but I don't think that quite does it justice. Uh, it's very funny. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's mainly sort of unintentionally funny things that people have spotted around in the streets. You know, like misspelt signs or punny kind of business names or that kind of thing. It's 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 the flotsam and jetsam of, of city life. I'd say a lot of people are walking around London taking pictures on their camera phones these days, and they've got nowhere to send weird stuff that they spot. So I sort of created this website as a place where people could send these. Ah, um, so you're, you're an aggregator. I mean, certainly a photographer, but you're an aggregator too. I'm an aggregator as well because I, I mean I, I believe in uh, people-powered photography, and it's uh, it's nice to hold an exhibition now and again where a lot of people get to contribute their photos. And plus, I can't be everywhere at once, and there's a lot of stuff going on in this city. So it sounds on the face of it, Alan Gilby, as though you, you guys have got a lot in common because your work also. So involves you uh, trailing. De- I, I realise we're only a, a hair's breadth away from an offensive title in your book as well. But your uh, w- working life involves you uh, heading down back passages in London, <laughs> particularly <laughs> particularly in the East End. Which is quite awkward for you today, isn't it? <laughs> it's not the easiest uh, show in terms of verbalising what we're talking about. But t- tell us what East End back passages uh, <laughs> is all about, please. God, let this be decent. Yes, I want to take you up my back passages and show you things you've never seen before. Um, I do tours um, I used to do them regularly now I do them as special events um, and I like to tell London stories people don't know and one of the reasons I like to tell London stories that people don't know is because I'm an East Ender I'm, I'm a real East Ender um, who hates the image of East Enders and the stories that East Enders normally tell about themselves or are told about them so about 10 years ago I started doing tours to tell you everything about Spitterfields that did not involve Jack the Ripper we were kind of the antidote to Jack the Ripper and absolutely didn't want nothing to do with it but wanted to talk about the rest of the social history and where it was going now and have opinions and also be funny because why be boring when you can be funny and still give over the same information what is the stereotype of the East Ender that you're hoping to escape from? Certainly there's a sensationalist uh, murder, yeah. uh, Jack the Ripper and the Blind Beggar and all that kind of stuff. But what, what's the stereotype of the East Ender? There's two. There's the outsider one um, coming soon to BBC, River Street, which whose basic sales point is the Olympics are over. Never mind those positive images. Let's go back to 1880 and the fog and the murders, um, which is why we have a huge Jack the Ripper industry. Thousands of people converge on Spitalfields every night to look for no dismembered prostitutes. Um, so <laughs> we wanted to answer that. And the other one is the self-perpetuated one. Is the one that comes through, which is Cockney geezers, who are generally Mockney geezers who don't actually come from the area who shave their heads and talk about shooters. It's all going off in there. And EastEnders. I hate EastEnders. I think I've picked that up. Yes. Uh, the programme, not the people. There's, there's also surely the whole uh, Shoreditch artsy uh, I think it's got an, a, a whiff of pretentiousness about it doesn't it uh, and there's that aspect of the East End as well which has appeared in uh, what the last uh, 10 20 years yeah I, yeah that's definitely part of the, the East End now a lot of people assume that I'm an East End hipster yes maybe that's why I came to you, you you've got a beard therefore you must be from the East yeah, End yeah I've got a beard and I'm wearing an anorak and it can be deceptive I'm actually from South London and I'm South London and proud but I don't think it's exclusive just the East End but yeah there's certainly some more interesting 
interesting fringes around here than there would have been, say, 20 years ago, I'm sure. Well, the big story, I mean, East End's always been a place of changes and displacements and movements, but... Uh, the chip on the shoulder in fact the entire chip shop on the shoulder is that the current wave of people coming in don't they regard the area like they've discovered it like it's real estate like it's places no one oh no one wanted this place and now we've found it we can make it wonderful which is horribly insulting to the people who've lived there before um like the geographical removal of shoreditch to include any part of east london they want to attach it to because it sounds cooler ignoring the real geography of the place it's that sense of taking over, that sense, and then pushing people out, as you certainly see in bits of Shoreditch. Mm. But isn't that a natural function of the process that you're describing? Well, it's the natural role of artists to move into poor working-class areas, live in cheap houses, raise the profile of the area, and then have to live somewhere else when more fashionable people want to live next to the artists. But it shouldn't be natural. There needs to be a bit of respect shown. There needs to be a bit of consideration and not people just going oh how wonderful it's we've reinvented this place oh what are you doing here could you please go away redchurch street's a great one redchurch street is becoming this incredibly fashionable street it borders the boundary which is becoming an incredibly fashionable council estate um which is still full of council tenants um and all their the bangladeshi shops for instance are being priced out they're losing the corner shops because now people want to sell artisan cheeses in them well, I actually had my first exhibition on a gallery in, uh, on Redchurch Street, and since then it's closed down. And a few of the galleries on that road have closed down, and they've had to move to a cheaper area. Now, can you guess where the cheaper area might be? Fitzrovia. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. Fitzrovia now is cheaper to hire gallery space than it is in the East End, because it's so fashionable around yeah. here. Red Street being fashionable is inexplicable if you walk down Red Street it just doesn't fit it doesn't make any great sense and yet there it is happening and the galleries in Red Street which yeah have been pushed out were overspills from Spitalfields it got pushed out when Spitalfields went more mainstream so okay I can understand getting away from uh, a a kind of an archetype or an image and trying to reassert the individual and and original perhaps uh, well original is a difficult word when we come to the East End uh, but uh, a more established form of of the East End but Patrick I was looking at your pictures and of course uh, they're not just based in the East End by any means it's all around London and there's an emphasis as the title of the book suggests uh, on things which which aren't so classy they look a bit rubbish They're, they're almost being held up for ridicule I think by the photographs is that perpetuating another sort of uh, stereotype uh, I, no I don't, I don't agree that it is uh, perpetuating a stereotype I mean I think I'm, I'm highlighting things which are a little unloved maybe I'm not passing judgement on anything and in fact the only reason I started taking pictures of these, these things in the first place is that a lot of the things I'm taking pictures of are quite transient they disappear after a couple of weeks nobody records this this stuff there must have been some really crummy things going on in the 1930s or 1940s for example that haven't been captured in photography so I, I like to think of myself as a sort of social historian capturing the the grubby underbelly not a grim grim side but just a little bit crummy and rubbish uh, side to sort of early 20th century London I think it's important to capture this stuff it tells you a lot about the people that that live around uh, areas at certain times and what, what people are like and their genuine concerns. Dog poo being one of them. <laughs> but it's also, it's affect- I mean, I know yourself, I know yourself and it, it, it's affectionate, it's really affectionate. It's affectionate for how imperfect people are mm. and all their little quirky crapnesses that make you love them, which is the, the opposite of nice, 
um, grey shop fronts with lowercase lettering in tastefulness, which is actually bland. Well, this is it. And this is the thing. I think we're living uh, in an age where human uh, error is becoming a thing of the past with spell check and all this kind of stuff. People people know what they're doing a little bit more, but still things slip through the nest, uh, the net. The nest, the net, and that's what I—that's what I quite like. I li- especially like when sign writers fail, because you can imagine that they somebody's had the idea for the sign, and then they've sent it to the sign writer, and then the sign writer hasn't spotted a spelling mistake in there. Um, the second part of the book is coming out next next week, and uh, there's a great example in there of a cafe in Wembley Central that, in the window, proudly displays uh, a sign saying "Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner." So I'm not sure whether that's some new keep fit health sort of routine or something like that, but I love that things like that slip through the net. One of my favourite pictures from your book is Dreamland, which is a, a pathetic little canopy uh, in the middle of a very untidy, unpleasant-looking street. It's very strange, that one. It, it, the sign it says at the top, news agent, then underneath, air condition, and then welcome to Dreamland. And it's the most grim and depressing place you've ever seen. Maybe the, maybe the guy had really strange dreams that wrote that sign. It's that twin with Margate, because in what's left of the funfair, there's a big sign that just says, Dreamland Car Park... <laughs> there is, and there's nothing else there. I think I have to go to Margate now. Yeah, yeah, do um, Mondays and Tuesdays all cocktails, ninety nine p. Brilliant. <laughs> this is uh, taking us off in an unexpected direction, I must say. <laughs> yes, entirely franchisable as well. Your uh, your idea there. We should think about uh, things uh, things slipping out and uh, the wrong words being used and so forth. The story that has gripped two people this week is the Andrew Mitchell I, I like it being called Gategate Gate at long last I've been waiting for that uh, in, just in case you've been off the planet for the last week Andrew Mitchell is uh, the chief whip of the Tory party newly appointed chief whip who has allegedly said something offensive and derisory well both in fact to a policeman who's guarding Downing Street who's, who's got this story? Oh I got this story yes he said he said Best you learn your beeping place. You don't run this beeping government. You're beeping plebs. Allegedly. This is what the police record says. He says, he said, you beeping plods, which I'm sure features in his normal vocabulary. Where to start with this story? Obviously, one of the uh, things that's been brought up fairly quickly is that only a few days ago we weren't entirely trusting the police's account of certain stories, and yet now uh, it seems that they're the good guys in this argument. What, What do you make of that Patrick uh, it's re- I mean it's really hard because uh, well MPs are usually quite trustworthy people I- I'm, I'm sure and uh, the police are usually quite trustworthy people can we just put the brakes on there for, for just a moment <laughs> yeah. sorry I'm going to get my tongue out my cheek <clears throat> uh, yeah so I don't know we're in an interesting position here so we've either have an MP that's lying or a policeman that's lying or an MP that's lying uh, and I'm not sure which one it is so let me run through the options again. It's an MP that's lying, a policeman that's lying, or an, an MP, MP that's, that's lying. lying. Yeah. yeah. Or an MP that's lying. Yeah, or an MP that's lying. And we've, got, we've got no way of knowing whether it is the, the MP that's lying. Well, I mean, obviously we don't have any way to know because this is 10 Downing Street and they don't have CCTV cameras or any microphones around the gate to uh, where the Prime Minister lives, which is strange. I think they would have worked that out by now, but... I think when he cycled off going, I'm going to have your bleeping job, that the police didn't write, and I'm bleeping having you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, where's the phone number of the son? He could, of course, have been saying he wants to become a policeman. Yes. That's the other bit forgotten from this story, of course. In the, and uh, obviously Hillsborough got forgotten in terms of, all oh, police tell lies, and so now they're all honest. Also, police were told off a lot for taking stories to the press, and aren't they investigating this at the 
didn't this break in the sun who had the policeman's transcripts I, I, I just I just like the way that uh, Mitchell said as he allegedly said as he rode off you haven't heard the last of this I think he actually meant I haven't heard the last of this <laughs> I think none of us are going to hear the last of... This is a completely unresolvable thing, though, isn't it? There's no way that anyone can possibly know the truth, particularly, as you say, if the uh, recording devices that don't exist weren't in operation that day. And at the end of the day, does this really matter? Well, of course, the the insinuation with the the use of... the the alleged use of the word pleb, well, it plays into this whole idea that the Tory party is out of touch and that they look down on the lower orders. Well, I, I suppose we could say that about the political class rather than necessarily one party or the other. We're standing in the East End. Uh, if ever there was a, an area representative of a particular class, it, it could be said to be you know, just around the corner from the, the Salmon and Ball in Bethnal Green. What, what, what do you make of the idea that the ruling elite regards themselves as such? Does, is that, is that I, bothersome? That's what people have leapt on. I mean, go and use the political class, which includes the other lot too. Mm. Um, but it is that sense of, oh, the curtain dropped for a second, and there it was absolutely naked. That's the attitude. It, it, it was that sense of people saying, sense of entitlement, that, that we are actually the people who are entitled to rule and you should know your place this is difficult when you're the person with the gun who's supposed to protect me from the other people with the gun who you might kind of say oh missed (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's interesting as well that um, during the riots there was a 16 year old who was uh, arrested and actually sent to prison for swearing at the police during the riots which was quite a tense situation so you could maybe understand the swearing in that situation more well, with the same, if it got, if it was proved that Mitchell had sworn at the police uh, over his bicycle incident, would he be jailed as well? That's why I'm interested to to know, or would he have to do community service? Isn't that what he's supposed to be doing now? <laughs> <laughs> Can I just get a, a show of hands? Who cares? It's not looking good on the caring front. Fun in a kind of low level way that somebody's squirming a bit and it confirms everything that kind of depresses you ultimately that that he's just going to go no that's all you know isn't that what a lot of the news has become and i'm not thinking of nick clegg at all when i say this but there is a lot of just spotting hypocrisy or uh just watching people squirm yeah and then yeah I, I took a I took a month off from the news earlier this year. I didn't watch any TV. I didn't read any newspapers or anything, and I felt a lot more liberated. And my outrage gland was less yeah. used. And uh, it's good because actually, I think there's a lot more things I could get outraged about in my in my daily life that I don't because I'm too busy getting angry with somebody that I've never met or neither care about. Mm. Um, so it's just another it's just another outrage. Someone will say something stupid next week. It's it's not a big thing, but I still want to see him get into trouble. So it's basically becoming the equivalent of internet chat rooms where. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much how it's going. I'm angry at that. I'm angry you said that. Well, I'm angry you said that, and off we go for a week. Okay, here's here's a non-story. I, like, I do like to introduce something yes. in that fashion. I'll keep a business. <laughs> a new SARS... Well, look, no, th- but this has been going on for a couple of days at the time of recording. There, there is a new SARS-like coronavirus that has appeared in the UK, and people are saying things like... Uh, we could all potentially die if everyone were to catch this virus. One person in the country has got this virus. I'm struggling to understand this. It's a fellow who's 49 years old. He's in the London hospital currently, having come back from Qatar, where he met... How appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bit stuffed up. Uh, Where he met the only other person on the planet who's got this virus, uh, and the other fellow died. This seems to be a number of people getting knocked down by cars or suffering heart attacks or cancer each day. It is the turning of the seasons as we stand under this tree being circled by squirrels in the drizzly rain. And when it was summery 
springy weather three days ago we have clicked the click the season's over and we've gone into what we're going to die off of this winter season where the new disease appears and that's what it is it's this one this year's one to be paranoid about well i remember a few years ago it's probably about four four years ago now when everybody died of bird flu i mean that was a that, that was, was a that terrible was time I when mean, you say everybody that might need yeah. some qualification well, no, sorry so i mean uh, everybody was supposed to die of bird flu so i got confused there yeah. for a second but i, I was terrified i mean i, I stayed away from all birds yeah. and and uh, and poultry for a very very long time yeah. and uh, this time uh, I, I, I'm, who am i supposed to stay away from now survive long enough to then not die of swine flu oh yeah that was, oh swine flu as well yeah we're supposed to sars or people from qatar neither of which seems difficult to avoid yeah i think i think i'm going to be i think i'm going to be all right i think it's a panic over nothing what we'll actually get is we'll all get brain damage by stroking cats a story that was in the papers for one whole day on every front page and then evaporated the next day never to be mentioned again who came up with that it's brilliant you know the image of dotty old ladies with their dotty cats it's a scientific explanation uh that cats um cat mites cat mites get into your blood and they actually attack your brain and you go prematurely senile as a result and they've got loads of evidence to prove it and it made all the front pages and then vanished instantly wow it was like leave those pussies alone that's uh that's quite worrying that might explain some of my brain action recently my, I'm going to get rid of my I cat was, I? I thought that one was apocalyptic I yeah. mean, that was a stunning and it then like people went, oh, it, I mean the, it seemed to be real so everybody ran away from it immediately go don't think about it just stroke the cats don't think about it I'm just going to see if I can rescue my, my show we've had uh, <laughs> three out of three non-stories so far and we're talking about staying away from Alan Gilby's cat this can't be right let's try and get on to a serious London story what could be more serious than Time Out and its trading status? Yes, Time Out has gone free this week, which is, uh, which is big news for them. I, I think well, the circulation had gone down quite a bit, I think, because most people are getting their listings from uh, various websites and, and, and going online to do it. But I think actually going free is quite a good thing for them to do. Uh, their circulation's increased from... I think they're at about twenty-five to 29,000 subscribers, but now they're going to be reaching three quarters of a million people a week which i think is a good thing and i've got a vested interest in that because they've started putting a uh, beep london picture on page eight of their every other week so oh, right, so the wrong person so, so all three of us <laughs> now I, I think that this is one of this is one of timeout's features isn't it that they just congratulate everybody in warm terms so that you can't walk down brick lane without noticing that every single uh, curry sh- shop there has got a cut out from timeout saying that this is the best restaurant in all of brick lane you've got your pictures appearing in timeout timeout has congratulated you on your uh, stand-up tour guideness my book group has been congratulated as one of the best in the universe by timeout i, I think we can just judge from this we're all great at what we do surely yeah, yeah we're just getting the acclaim we deserve yeah over those other people though the brick lane curry shops are generally every single one has the curry chef of the year as certified by non-specific mentioning <laughs> There was one, there's one place down there that claims to be the curry restaurant of the year as uh, named by the BBC. I don't remember that show. No. no. And there's one that's got curry chef of the year as a neon sign. So the investment in having a neon sign that proclaims with no date that you're going to be curry chef of the year this year and for many years after while your investment on your sign pays off is... I, I think if it's in neon, it's to be trusted. I mean, that's how I live my life anyway. Do you know I believe that as well? I, with it, you, your pictures seem to suggest that, do <laughs> Is that why you're wearing those neon trousers? <laughs> yes, <laughs> trust my legs. Well, we're talking about listings so that you can find out what to do in London, and it just so happens that our sponsor this week uh, offers exactly that service, but in a unique way. Uh, the emphasis here is on finding dates with new chums. 
the website in question is doingsomething.co.uk and uh, if you go through doingsomething.co.uk forward slash Londonist then you will uh, find out more about how to hook up with people to do uh, cool things in town so that's doingsomething.co.uk forward slash Londonist and you can uh, read people's uh, messages pick up a pal or two and indeed date people at locations around London Speaking of locations around London, there's a horrible object that seems to have appeared on the north bank of the Thames. It's a, a new building. No, not under your feet, Alan. <laughs> As a tour guide, I would hope you would have noticed that before we started the conversation. We are admiring a picture here of 20 Fenchurch Street, which is a new addition, possibly the newest addition, to the London skyline. Uh, it's called the walkie-talkie. It's been nicknamed that. It seems a bit of a contrived nickname to me, actually. I'm not oh, sure that when it When was the last time anybody that? had a walkie-talkie or actually mm. remembers what it looks like? It's the thing that's bigger on the top than at the bottom building. Well, it, that's so it can have a public sky garden on the upper floors. And the, the, the ad says, this will offer hilltop-like views at the top of an office block. What's more, the sky garden will be free as a condition of the planning consent. Expect countless articles in 2014 comparing the views between the walkie-talkie and the shard. What do you make of this piece of architecture that seems not to fit in with the area? The great thing about that viewing gallery on that building is you'll get a wonderful view of London because you won't be able to see that building. (laughs) An an idea not unused where the shard was concerned actually, yes. It sticks out half a mile. It does stick out half a mile but I'm going to make myself very unpopular here but I I kind of like the way it looks. I've got to admit... uh, I know people say that the London skyline shouldn't be changed, but it's we've got to move into the future, and, 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 and this, is, this is what it's going to be. I mean, I, if, we, if we hang back behind, we're just going to have a flat, dull city, and it's not going to destroy any of the buildings that are already there. Well, no, in fact, it's been designed... That, this is a, some people think this is a bit of a cynical way of building a structure in the first place, but as you say, it's bigger at the top than at the bottom, and the idea there is simply to fit in more room. Well, surely only one or two buildings in that area can do that before they run out of things like sunlight or room in the air yeah, and wind chill factor of course that, that, that will increasingly the more, the more they build a tower cluster the more the wind will blow between it um, I, I'm going to come out saying boo because apart from the fact I think that's the worst of the buildings that have come up under the oh we can do computer aided design now we can make them any shape they like let's have the parallelogram let's do the dollop let's call this one the donut <laughs> um just because you can I used to be really proud of London that it was a flat city uh, that it was a city that you could see from one end to the other and it had that skyline and it was the only city that wasn't going in for it and Canary Wharf was okay because that was at the edge and that made it its own area but when they started growing up in the middle and now you're really seeing the difference now when you look down roads at vistas you're really seeing how the tower cluster becomes London and the trouble is they are buildings that could be absolutely everywhere and they are well some are and I don't mind I don't mind some of them uh, I don't mind the Gherkin particularly because it's so its own thing and that's quite londony um, a lot of them are just novelty shapes uh and and something's going something's being lost and they are beginning to now they're growing they're beginning to dominate surely this isn't true about it being a flat city with the church spires poking out at uh, irregular intervals across no, the, that's part of the landscape flat, yeah, flat, flat with pokey bits well, that's what we got here, isn't it? That's no, that's lumpy bits. It's completely different. Poke, good, lump, bad. I just, I just think that that, that we have to, we have to move with the times. Times, I bet, I bet, um, I bet uh, Christopher Wren's 
I bet his his change to the city after the Great Fire of London wasn't popular at the first place. I bet people were saying, "Oh, this place looks horrible. It looks like it looks like Paris now. What are they doing?" You know, they didn't do Paris though. They wouldn't accept his Paris design because it was too straight and uh, measured and and boulevardy. Right. And the churches were supposed to be the punctuation, so they were supposed to be the high point. So that was it. But the new church is commerce, he said grandiosely. That was what Ren said. No, that's what I just said. Oh, okay. <laughs> you made a complete beep up of that. Didn't I you? really beep that badly. <laughs> what else have we got in the past? Okay, we were standing outside Bethnal Green uh, Police Station, and that's kind of pertinent to a story that is um, happening this week where there are cuts pro- being proposed to the police and fire service again. Um, apparently, the fire service budget needs to be cut by £65 million over the next two years, um, and they've already found £45 million of that, which isn't being taken away from the stations or staff, but is more backroom staff and logistics. But they still need to get rid of another £20 million. What we're looking at here is possibly losing 30 uh, fire stations and 30 fire engines and losing 840 jobs. The reason that they're giving for this is that uh, the number of fires in the capital have fallen. But I think that's a bit of a short-sighted view um, at the moment. And also, uh, with the police cuts, they're saying that crime rates are falling massively in the city. Now, what the problem is here is um, they've got to maintain 32,000 police in the city at the moment. That was Boris's pledge. But at the moment, we're falling under that by about 1,000 police officers. And a lot of that can be attributed to policemen being taken off the streets and having to sit behind desks because of cuts that happened a few years ago where they took uh, civilian jobs out of the police force and now policemen are having to fill in those civilian jobs. And we've got a siren right now. Um, it's the Rosser it's, 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 it's Andrew Mitchell. Um, no. <laughs> uh, chasing them on his bike. Um, I, I think this is incredibly short-sighted. They're saying that crime rates are dropping massively in the city so they don't need the police around but I seem to remember last year there were some riots and we didn't have any police anywhere there you'd be taking a, an extraordinary example there I can't remember the last time there was a public order incident of that magnitude and that scale and popping up at all sorts of different places at the same time so it certainly seems reasonable to me that you wouldn't budget for that happening on a, on a regular basis but this is surely a chicken and egg argument isn't it that uh, because there's not too much in the way of uh, crime and there's not too much in the way of fires we can reju- those, those facts exist because there's plenty of police and plenty of fire engines yeah, it's the everything only happens once theory of anything oh we've had an olympics that's gone so we don't need that again oh we've had a riot Oh, that's gone. We don't need that again. Well, where do you stop with that idea, though? I mean, you know, we, we discover a meteorite's heading towards the planet. Everyone starts looting. We're going to need even more police. What contingency do we need to be prepared for? It didn't seem like there were any great arguments for having less, generally, that everything was safer, generally. Therefore, we could step down a bit. OK, those are extraordinary things where you need to step up, but there didn't seem to be any argument for stepping down other than the old money-saving argument of, oh, well, we'll you know, times are hard we'll have to let them get harder and one of the ways they'll get harder is your house might burn down more than it used to or you might get robbed more sorry <laughs> i would hate my house to be burning more than it used to <laughs> i just i just think it's uh, i think i think it's a shame that uh, policemen are being used to do civilian jobs they're just sitting in there doing just jobs where they could be out on the streets and crime might be falling but it could fall further surely is this true though there's this idea that there's an inexhaustible supply of backroom stuff and if what you're saying is correct, then actually these aren't backroom staff. These are front-line uh, staff who just pop into the back office to do some stuff. And because they're now in the back room, now they're the next for the axe. Well, this is it. This is precisely what's happening. And they're, they're saying that they, they need to maybe axe some of these people who are in the back room because they're not doing the jobs in the right places. <laughs> don't, don't go in the back room. That's the thing I'm learning. But part of, part of, the, uh, part of the proposed cuts as well is, is um, shutting down a few more police stations and moving crime desks into places like supermarkets and libraries. Mm. 
which is just strange, isn't it? I mean, I can't imagine popping along to my local Tesco saying I've just been viciously mugged. Yeah. Uh, can you help me out? And they're like, yeah, just go and sit in the bakery section for a while and we'll be... Five, 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 five crimes or less. Yeah, exactly. have, a do- have a donut, in fact, bring us one. Yeah, can I redeem club card points the more I got mugged? Asbo, sponsored by Asda. Asbo. That's, a, that's perfect. And Asdo. Asdo, Asdo. Actually, I'm beginning to like this idea now. Cut the police. Put them in the supermarkets, the leftover ones. According to the people who believe that the Illuminati controlled the Olympics, there's also a planet heading for the Earth, which is going to destroy it and knock it into alternative space or something, and the dates are all online. These are the same people who said that the bomb was going to go off at the opening and closing and power opening and power closing too. Since we're down this conversational alley... Could you t- tell us about these brilliant Illuminati? They're not illuminating very much here. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, during the Olympics, I became slightly obsessed with people who were obsessed with the Olympics being a front for something else because they were analysing the opening and closing ceremonies and all the Illuminati symbolism, which was most clearly represented by the pyramidal eye structures that surrounded the um, the stadium. And the terrible thing is the more you read their analysis of things, the strangely more sense it makes. The more you look for these things, you start finding them, which is creepy because you go there to go, ha ha, you wally. And then you just start going, they brought on a giant apple. A giant apple is a symbol of the Illuminati. And there is one in the Paralympic opening ceremony. And then you get to the closing ceremony and you think, this is like a druid ritual. And then you read that it was written by druids. However... Where, where did you read that it was written by Druid? I went uh, somewhere online. Oh, there. There. <laughs> that place, uh, where was it? No, they did consult with them, genuinely, apparently, because it was very much an evocation of the seasons and the fire and death, and apparently they were consulted on the wordage. It's extraordinary. There are, there are these little bedroom prophets doing doom, and um, and uh, they were talking about it was going to be like, um, like uh, 9-11, and uh, there was going to be mass sacrifice at the climax of the Olympics. Well, there was. Did, did you miss that? I did. did what happened? Was that like? Yeah, that was in the. Clo- yeah, it was there. You saw it, didn't you? Well, the Spice Girls they sacrificed yes. their career, I, and, and I think George Michael sacrificed his new single. That was that was a beautiful moment. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there something about the shard opening ceremony? It's uh, well, the, the laser show was that. Uh, did that have an Illuminati angle? Eye in the pyramid. Well, I, I, I remember I, I, I went to go and see the uh, the fantastic laser show f- uh, from the Shard. And, uh, oh, yes, we all enjoyed that. Yeah, it was it was great. I've got laser pens more powerful than that. But I, uh, the Shard's official tweet stated that um, a lot of the lasers shot from the Shard that night weren't actually intended to be seen by human eyes, which ah. led into something that you... D- <laughs> transdimensional reptiles. Yeah. Some of them are our own royal family. Yeah. I, I mean, I've got a mate who's a transcendental reptile, and we were talking at the pub, and uh, he didn't see it either, so I'm not sure whether they got their calculations right. We've several stories left on the cards. Amongst them, G4S and TFL, those two great institutions of the city, about whom a crossword has never been said. Where should we begin? Should we t- talk about complaints? Many yeah. a beep going on there. The um, yeah, TFL released uh, their complaints figures last week, and they don't sound that big when you first read them so they were on the trains and the underground was 2.27 complaints per 100,000 journeys which isn't really that much and it was 2.2 uh, complaints per 100,000 journeys on the buses but the interesting uh, the interesting thing about the complaints on the buses uh, were that 40 to 50 percent of um, complaints on the buses were about driver behavior including bad driving not stopping and rude drivers um, I, I understand being a bus driver is a very difficult job and they have to they have to put up with a lot but i've experienced rudeness from bus drivers before and and i've certainly experienced drivers just driving straight by me when i'm at bus stops i think a lot of bus drivers 
seem to see their job as getting the bus from A to B, but without thinking about actually picking up the passengers on the route. So they know they have to move it from one place to another. I slightly disagree, and I'm a big fan of bus driver because I think they put up with a lot of beep. But my idea of a bus driver's brain uh, is essentially an image of his lunch. I think that's all he's thinking about quite often. And you very often see the bus driver timing his journey, not according to the schedule or to people wanting to get on and off or to even the flow of traffic, but really to arriving at the handover point at the right moment. So, for, for example, you often get that, you know, the kind of lurking around the corner from the changeover stop and you'll be lurking there with the doors open, a bit chilly in December doing that. Uh, and you'll sit there for 10 minutes getting increasingly late for whatever you were trying to reach and then you'll go around and, and then you've got the kerfuffle of the, uh, the driver changeover. It's a very simple test to find out if it's a nice or a nasty bus driver. It goes like this. I'm sorry, I forgot my oyster. I would now like to pay cash and I may have to look in my pocket for a moment and see what reaction you get. I do get waved onto buses a lot without having to use my Oyster card because usually the machine isn't working. It's like, oh, yeah, it's not working. Yeah. And they can't be bothered. And then people try and pay. Oh, no, just get on the bus, which is quite nice. I wish there was a, a bit more of that. I do. I mean, I, I, I'm not anti-bus driver. I do agree they have to put up with a lot. But I saw a beautiful microcosm of the whole argument once where a bus driver called a guy a git and then the guy punched him in the face. So you had both sides. They had driver being rude and you had passenger abuse in one beautiful story. I miss, I miss amusing bus conductors, though, while we're being nostalgic. Mm. There used to be a rich Which, vein... That wasn't really nostalgia, I think, going on there. <laughs> well, no, well, for me it is now, because it's a long time since I saw an amusing... Music, yeah, an amusing bus conductor who would have a little comedy shtick, and some of them used to do commentaries. And um, this is true. I got on a bus once, and it was number 15, and it was coming down by Poplar. And the driver, the conductor, liked to sing. And he started to sing, sing, sing a song. And the tramp got on and joined in. Sing out loud to last you whole lot. And then a third man joined in. It don't matter if it's good enough. That is the best bus journey ever. That was 35 years ago. I have never forgotten that, and life should be more like that generally. Well, I wish they'd say good morning once in a while. That's all I ask for. Yeah, a simple good morning in the morning would really help things, wouldn't it? But if you, you give, them, give them a bright, cheery good morning yourself, and do they not do it? No, that's precisely the... I don't expect them to say good morning without provocation. But uh, I do think if you say good morning to someone and they blank you, that's a little rude. You should just wait and, and wait for your good morning. Say it again, that's what I would do. <laughs> I my, said good morning, sir. <laughs> with my <laughs> hand hovering over the oyster reader, <laughs> yeah. not until I get a good morning from exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, a little appeal from me to bus drivers if you have to stop and get all your passengers off the bus and they've got to wait for the next one uh, the rules say that we're supposed to get transfer tickets and if you don't have a transfer ticket then quite often the bus driver on the bus coming along behind yours isn't going to be as generous spirited as you think they will be so please give us a transfer ticket, please. None here. They're not what? going to say anything. Oh, oh, all right, okay. If you fancy reading and uh, being entertained by writers and uh, doing all things literary, the Soho Literary Festival is going on as we speak. It's going on till the end of the weekend. Uh, this is fantastic. Have a look at this lineup. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, it's being run at the Soho Theatre in Dean Street by the Oldie, and there's a lot of names there that are instantly recognisable, and a lot of them as the publication would suggest more senior clive stafford smith in particular is going to be on over the weekend well worth a look uh, faye weldon i think on sunday if memory serves simon baron cohen uh Mirabar hillel uh, lots of uh, big names there john bird i'd love to see him um get yourself along you Haven't can mention pam airs pam oh she's wonderful do you, you a fan i um i used to write um musicals with a guy who 
played piano for her. He thought she had a lot of integrity in in her kind of Pam-Asian oeuvre. Can you do the accent? Oh, he cannot do the voice. <laughs> no, apparently oh, not. Yeah. <laughs> that was Benny Hill, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you've got beyond, beyond the. Can we talk about this beyond the uh, East End back passages? You have a wide and varied career in, in television. Uh, well, I work in kids' TV mainly. Um, I write for write for animation and um, yeah, and come up with shows as well. So I I, I was I headed the disastrous re- rebirth of Pink and Perky two years ago that nobody already remembers. Is that? Do you, <laughs> See, that went well, didn't yeah. it? That one. It's a comeback. When's the next comeback? Yeah. Yes. When are you doing that again? Yeah. <laughs> were they in puppet form still? No, they were CGI. That would be why. No. It's not the same. You need to see the string, don't you? Yeah. It, well, they they decided. I mean, I was out of my control, but they decided not to do the helium voices either, which was about the only thing Pinky and Perky really had going for them. So you did an animation about two pigs Pink that called, had nothing. In- two pigs called Pinky and Perky, mm. and I tried to put in lots of references to the old series just in case anybody remembered. Like the Beatles turned up one week, who were the puppet version of the Beatles, and all the supporting cast were named after other Pinky and Perky puppets. Absolutely nobody remembers. But no, I feel, I feel pretty bad about asking the question now. Yeah, it was not one of my best. I'm now doing a preschool show about philosophy. Are you really? Yeah. It's on CBeebies next year called What's the Big Idea? I like the sound of that. I like, I'll be honest, I like it more than I like the sound of the Pinky and Perky. Yeah. They would let us tackle anything other than God and death because toddlers might get a bit traumatised. The What's On section for the week ahead, no real link. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the art show that'll get tongues wagging this week is sure to be the Turner Prize at Tate Britain. The 18th year of the coveted award, this year's shortlisted artists are once again displaying their talents at Tate Britain in London after a brief sojourn at Gateshead's Baltic Centre last year. On the list are Spartacus Chetwind, Luke Fowler, Paul Noble and Elizabeth Price. The Turner Prize contestants' work goes on display on Tuesday the 2nd of October and remains on show until January next year. Tickets cost £10 or eight fifty for concessions. Visit tate.org.uk to find out more. There's an exciting show returning to Saddle as Wells this week. Akram Khan's contemporary solo work, Desh, was critically acclaimed first time around. Now it's back and he's working with some exciting new collaborators. Khan has teamed up with Oscar-winning visual artist Tim Yip, who is the production designer for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Saddle as Wells associate artist Michael Holes, writer and poet Kartika Nair, composer Jocelyn Pook and slam poet Polar Bear. Desh means homeland in Bengali and is said to be Khan's most intimate work to date. Tickets cost between 12 and 36 pounds and the show runs for just under a week from Tuesday October 2nd visit saddleswells.com this week's opera recommendation is a show that's so rare it hasn't been seen on the London stage since 1979. But Handel's Julius Caesar is back at the London Coliseum for a month from Tuesday the 2nd. Featuring Lawrence Zazzo as Caesar and Anna Christie as Cleopatra, this new production is conducted by Baroque expert Christian Kernin. His previous ENO credits include Castor and Pollux, which received this year's Olivier Award for Best New Opera. Tickets range from £16 to a hefty £99. Visit eno.org.uk. Arthur Darville and Lawrence Fox star in Our Boys at the Duchess Theatre from Wednesday the 3rd of October. 
Jonathan Lewis's play is described as a wonderfully funny yet searingly honest account of the tribulations, tedium and terror that young soldiers face when recovering from injuries incurred in the line of duty. But their tedious days are jeopardised by a dangerous incident when a young officer arrives fresh from Sandhurst. Then the fighting really starts. Our Boys runs until December. Tickets cost between £20 and £65. Visit ourboystheplay.com to find out more. And finally, October is Photo Month in East London. This year, it's themed Radical London, as East London has a proud history of activism protesting against injustice, inequality and racism, and seeking to improve the lives of ordinary people. The East End has also undergone radical changes, as we've been discussing, from the redevelopment following the Blitz to the current regeneration created by the Olympics. All these things will be reflected in the events, exhibitions, talks, photo walks and competitions taking place over the month. Venues involved include the Whitechapel Gallery, Rich Mix and Spitalfields. Visit photomonth.org for more more information and don't forget you can find out more about all of the events just mentioned plus many more as well as all these stories we've been discussing in today's show at londonist.com patrick dalton alan gilby uh, any of those grab your interest well, Photo Month immediately. That's fascinating. Yeah, isn't it's it? brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'm exhibiting at Photo Month. In fact, my uh, an exhibition for a project that I did last year is opening Photo Month next Tuesday night at Oxford House, just off Bethnal Green Road. Uh, it was a project that I did last year where we set up um, people in London, Sao, London, Dubai, Sao Paulo, Shanghai, Auckland, and San Francisco to take a picture every 30 seconds for 24 hours. We've got groups of photographers to do that in each city. So what you've got uh, simultaneously over this 24-hour period. So what you can see at this exhibition is one day, the 11th of November last year, captured simultaneously in six different cities. So you can see pictures besides each other which were taken at exactly the same moment at six different points around the world. It's going to be massive It's um, in terms of the size not in terms of popularity necessarily um but it's on for two months <laughs> sell it, sell yeah, it i'm hard. really selling that there aren't i uh, it's, it's going to be on for two months at oxford house just off bethnal green road go down um, yeah i'm going to be on the i think it's october the 8th it's a sunday um there's a photo fair in spitterfields market with lots of stalls and people selling their photos and photo relied things i'm going to be there with me book which has a lot of photos in it uh, and at various points in the day I'm going to lead people off on little ad hoc photo safaris so we can just take them around the streets and take them to some streets that are maybe not so photographed and hopefully devoid of street art Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that we, we, we had a brief chat earlier we were talking about the uh, graffiti tours that are taking place around the East End at the moment people could go around hoping to see a Banksy and all they see is people stenciling on top of stencils on top of stencils and top of stencils it's got so much now that you you can't even really see any good pieces anymore because there's just so much visual stimulus that nothing really penetrates through anymore that's partly the reason why I started doing what I was doing because I see my book as sort of the antithesis to street art if I do include any graffiti in my book it's usually either really badly executed graffiti or really juvenile graffiti something like I don't know like uh, willy graffiti that you might find on a school desk that kind of stuff I can't believe I just said the word willy I hate this beat business (laughs) 
<laughs> I like the rubbish graffiti artists. Yeah. I mean, uh, I like some of it. I like the stuff that relates to where it's been painted. But what's happening in Brick Lane is it's just becoming a kind of launch yourself gallery, and people actually come from all over the world to do the same pieces on Brick Lane that they do in any other city that they happen to be visiting on their promotional tours. But I like the rubbish ones. There's a couple. There's, have you seen Dribble Boy, which isn't his name? That's what I call him. Who's a guy who just seems to dribble paint on the pavement in a kind of loose signature under other people's pieces of street art i think i'm the only person who's noticed this really it's a bit like a dog like weeing on the wall he wheezes on other people's graffiti to say he was there so he's going to piggyback on other people's yeah, photos it's, it's, it's this little dribbly wibbly like hello here i am look at me but not much what there was there was one that i was um, i was really fond of for a while it, it, it's similar to the dribbling in a, in a way but it's somebody had just been going around london writing mark on the wall and I thought that was the, the, the rubbishest tag ever and they were everywhere Mark written on bricks and everything I found out watching the culture show it was Mark Wallinger doing it oh yes I did know that yeah so he'd been going around tagging with a piece of chalk and writing Mark someone has started writing mock on bricks as a, uh, as sort of taking the pee a little bit I, f- I feel I want to just open the pages of your book a little more, Alan, because we've. I just flicked it open uh, in my hand here and discovered White Chapels always felt a bit rubbish, or something like that as a chapter title, oh, yeah. which seems to generally uh, capture the downbeat feeling of today's show, full of self abuse and uh, swearing. Well, White Chapel's one of those rough areas that's refusing to be unroughed, which is. And it's always been like it. it always, you get estate agents who are probably claiming it's like North Wapping or very east bit of fields but it's not it's Whitechapel and you're more likely to find a dosser on your doorstep than a charming bohemian quarter this is not an aspect of the east end that gets mentioned at all in things like Spitalfields Life or some of those uh well, they, they certainly present a various and positive view of the yes, East End. Bitterfield's life is this incredibly positive view of absolutely everything and therefore very popular because it's a lovely warm bath in the morning uh, and particularly popular with people who don't live in anywhere near Spitalfields who kind of dream of going there one day and enjoying the village life that enfolds. And it's, it's, you know, it's nice what he discovers, but it's very... It's not the whole picture. I suppose I see myself like he does... He sees the fields in Spitalfields and I see the spittle. <laughs> I can't do better than that to close the item. <laughs> We've been talking uh, at the beginning about photography in Patrick's book and the photography in this one, it smells real. It looks like what you see when you're walking down the street and uh, I quite like that. It's, this is a non-Instagrammed version of the East End. I like the quirky little detail. I mean, there's, there's one there that you might, you might like. It's a fountain with liberty with, like, you know, drinks bottles <laughs> piled up in it. I love it. Brilliant. It's that Smirnoff bottle lying in the fountain under the word liberty and an angel or cherub who's kind of been half daubed with white paint for no particular reason, which isn't particularly street art you would send to your friends. No, no, exactly. It's, it, that's perfect, perfect. We've just got time before the end of the show to fit in the weekly historical quiz. Alan, you're going to be delighted to know that it's a date-related Right, I don't quiz. do dates, either with girls or in history. <laughs> Sadly. Or both. Yeah, sadly. <laughs> so you do walking tours with history, but you don't do dates. Yeah. Uh, so you, now I, but I do. I do photo books about London, but I cannot remember street names. I know where I'm going, and I've always known where I'm going. But I ca- if you asked me to describe it to you and give you street names, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know where to begin. Uh, when, I, when I do tours now, I have two people I do them with sometimes. Who is Ray the visual aid, who just holds up cards with the dates on, and Chris the teacher, who just knows them. Brilliant. <laughs> so you've got a man who is essentially employed to be your memory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's see how you get on without him in the uh, the quiz here. Uh, five questions, and I think it's a point and answer in today's. And the we first. Could buzz by going beep. Oh yes, we could. 
Oh, wait, so it's a buzzing. It's a buzzing thing. Well, it wasn't until okay. a second ago. I like it being buzzing. Should we beeping, beeping, <laughs> beeping. I should now. Do like I? This is going to get compli- complicated. Do I have to take a point off if you bleep too early? Beep. Okay, that's a point off Alan straight away. Okay, uh, Monday, the 24th of September, 1917. How does a 50-kilogram bomb arrive outside the Bedford Hotel on Southampton Row in Bloomsbury, central London, killing 13 people and injuring a further 26? It's dropped by a Zeppelin. Damn it, you're right. Yes! But you didn't bleep. Oh, bleep. Is anyone going to bleep? (laughs) Bleep! (laughs) Yes, Alan. It's a Zeppelin. Correct. You're back to uh, zero. Tuesday, the 25th of September, 1818. A breakthrough in blood transfusions at Guy's Hospital. But what was the breakthrough? I'll give you that date again, because, Alan, you've already forgotten it. I think the date will do it. The 25th of September, 1818. What's the breakthrough in blood transfusions? Bleep. Yes, Patrick. It was the first one. It was not the first one. Beep. They stopped using wooden syringes. You're drifting into the right direction, but no. Beep. It was the second one. <laughs> this could take a while if that's your approach. <laughs> no. They invented the pointy, glassy, bottly, tubey thing that puts it in. That was unbleeped and no. <laughs> Bleep. Uh, it was uh, the first time a sterilised needle had been used. No, get, get off needles. Think, think Beep. It. it was the last time a knitting needle had been used. Forget the needle. <laughs> Beep, the last time Cleopatra's needle had been used. I'm going to tell you, if, if you if this is your last guess. Huh? Beep, it was the first time they'd taken into consideration blood types. That's a, a good answer, but it's wrong. Oh. One more guess, Alan, if you want it. Bleep. No. That's, it's the first human-to-human blood transfusion. Oh, they uh, used it before! They used animals' blood. <laughs> ah, did that go well? Bleep, no idea. <laughs> We're still on zero. Zero. Not good. Wednesday... <laughs> Everything to buy. Buy my history book. (laughs) (laughs) Wednesday, the 26th of September, 1850. The first stretch of the North London Railway is opened, running between Bow in East London and Islington in North London. Which line covers that route today? The overground. Uh, Uh, The overground does cover some of it. Uh, Well, it was the North London line before before, um, Underground took it over. Yeah, but today... Um, Stratford to Highbury and Islington. Uh, I'm, go- I'm going to give you the overground, but there's another line which I think covers just slightly more. So you got you got your point there. Bleep uh, the district line? No, it's not. It's the DLR. One to Alan. Yay! Thursday, the 27th of September. But in which year? This is definitely for you, Alan. In which year? Marking the end of British stage censorship, the musical Hair opens at the Shaftesbury Theatre in the West End, complete with on-stage nudity and portrayals of drug-taking. Bleep. 1968. Spot on. Mm. One all. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You look genuinely elated. (laughs) Friday, finally, Friday the 28th of September, 1985. What event sparks riots on the streets of Brixton, South London? Can we have the year again? Yes, 85. 85. There's been lots of weird London riots, like oh. Calico and things, but that's earlier. Let's, let's say it's got a certain resonance with the most recent bout. Trainers. They've just invented trainers. Which may be true, but no, not the answer. Bleep, uh, was it about stop and search policy? No. 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 <laughs> Loosely, no, it's not really connected. People were stealing their dogs and using them for blood transfusions. No. Bleep, a uh, policeman called... Uh, the, someone called a policeman a pleb. 
<laughs> I wish that were the case, but no, uh, far, far, far more serious than that. Um, think about what uh, what triggered the most recent lot of riots. Uh, police shooting, who's killed somebody? I need a bleep from you. Bleep. Yes, the it, it follows the accidental shooting of a woman during a police raid, uh, which started that lot. So, Alan, you are the winner with a massive uh, two to one victory over Patrick Dorr. The depth of your history knowledge is, <laughs> is apparent. Knows no depth. I'd like to present you with the prize for this week, this squirrel. <laughs> Remind us as we tie off uh, where we can see uh, more of Bleep London and uh, more about East End back passages. And please don't don't just type that into Google. You really need to get the website yeah, right. You won't want to... You want to go to eastendbackpassages.com as one word. Yeah, don't put in backpassages. It's not good. Uh, uh, really not good. Eastendbackpassages.com and the book's available from all good people called Amazon. Bleep. Um, bleep. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm stuck in. I'm stuck in the bleep side here. <laughs> bleep. Permission to speak. Um, right. Twenty years from now on the psychiatrist's couch. Yeah. <laughs> well, it all started when I did this podcast. Uh, yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, well, you can read uh, Bleep London Two, which is out in all good bookshops next Tuesday, the fourth of October. Interestingly, while I was um, creating uh, Book Two, I went looking for a place called Back Passage in uh, Clerkenwell, and I was looking for the roadside to take a picture because I thought it would make quite a funny picture, and I went there. And it, I couldn't find it, so I went into the local pub to consult the nearest thing to the Oracle, the local landlord, and I said, I'm looking for Back Passage, which is, a, you know, a gamble when you walk into a pub yeah. um, to say that kind of thing. And he went, oh, oh, the alleyway. And I went, yeah. Uh, I said, but the road sign's not there. And apparently the sign was stolen so much the council have just it stopped replacing it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's an interesting little anecdote there. But, yes, um, Bleep London 2 rhymes with flip out in bookshops next week, or you can visit www.bleep.com bleeplondon.co.uk and obviously it's not actually called Bleep London just in case we've thoroughly confused you it's called London yeah (laughs) Alan Kilby Patrick Dalton thank you very much thank Thank you. you here she stands And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Patrick Dalton and Alan Gilby. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. See